Let's turn to John chapter 4, please. John chapter 4. We began this particular chapter last week as Jesus was now moving on from Judea up to Galilee. And instead of taking the road that most of the Jews would take, if they were going up north, they would travel double the distance to go around the land in the center of the land there, which was called Samaria. They wouldn't go through Samaria, so they'd go around it to go up north, or they'd go around it to come back down south. But Jesus decided to take a more direct route into Samaria for one very valuable reason, and that was to have a conversation with a woman at a well near Shechem, in a place called Sikar. A divine appointment that was made before the foundation of the world. And it's interesting that as we see Jesus go there, his disciples going into the town to buy food, it's the middle of the day, he's out there in the, in the desert area uh, by this well where nobody else is, except for this one woman who comes to the well at the same time. Not at the time when most women would come. They would come together in groups. And they would come to get water early in the morning. Or they'd come later in the afternoon. She, she came in the middle of the afternoon. And it said something about her life. That she was different from all the others. More than likely ostracized because of her lifestyle. Her sin. But Jesus went to meet her there. And they fell into this conversation about water. The water of the well. And she posed a question in a sense to Jesus by saying, Why is it that you, being a Jew, would talk to me, a woman, and ask me to get you water? A woman of Samaria, no less. And Jesus said, You know, if you only knew the gift of God and the one who, bring, who can bring that water to you, you would ask and you would receive eternal life. It's there that we want to kind of pick up where we left off last time. The very statement that Jesus actually gives to this, this woman about the water that he could give. He said to her in verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Speaking of the well water. Which, by the way, was not just any well. We know that it was the well of Jacob. And she even questioned him about that, you know. I mean, are you greater than Jacob to be able to offer me even better water than this? But Jesus said, Whosoever drinketh of this water, the water of this well, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him... You know, twice he says, I shall give him, I shall give him... Uh, it kind of answers her question, who are you? The one that can give this water. Whoever, whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well, a fountain of water springing up 
into everlasting life. That's where we left off last time. Now we pick up on the rest of the story. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. This is where I say now, the plot thickens. This isn't about water anymore. It is, but it isn't. Let's remember always, let's always remember this truth. Anyone who drinks from the wells of the world will thirst again. For sinful pleasures never satisfy. I think there are many of us in this room today that could attest to that truth. That whoever is drunken from the wells of this world, we realize they just don't satisfy. It's, it's been said that love, success, wealth, and fame, that these are but a few of the countless springs at which man or men have stooped to drink, only to rise from them to find that they have no lasting inward satisfaction, and that these wells offered no enduring personal fulfillment. You know, if anyone knew about spiritual dehydration, because that's really the problem here, but if anyone really knew about spiritual dehydration, I, uh, it, it, was, it was Solomon, the son of David. Because in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us that he went on a quest, an experiment, so to speak, to find something worthwhile in life. Now remember this, he was the, well, what, the wealthiest man in the kingdom, he was the king. He was also the, the wisest man in the kingdom. Because when the Lord asked him, he said, what, what is it, Solomon, that you want? He said, I want your wisdom. I want wisdom. And God gave it to him. But you would think that he would dwell on that wisdom. But instead... The older he got, the more he began to seek out after other things, other things worthwhile in life, as he would ask. Mostly what he did was experimented with pleasures of all sorts, denying himself no avenue to gain any and every pleasure. He would go out and build great buildings and, and, and plant major vineyards. He would have luxurious gardens and parks. And then he would have a large entourage of slaves as well as a harem. And we know all about that, don't we? Because if you've read of the life of Solomon, you realize he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a thousand people that could just keep you distracted all the day long. And he had flocks and he had herds. He had silver and he had gold. 
And even with all of that, what was the conclusion of this experiment? Well, he tells us this in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 11. He says, And I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, which means that my hands had done and produced and worked on, and on the labor that I had labored to do. He says, I looked on all of these things, and behold, all, all, not some, not most, all, was vanity and vexation of spirit. Wow, vanity. What is vanity? Emptiness. Worthlessness. Vexation of spirit. It only brought him to a point of great distress upon his heart. And then he says, and there was no profit under the sun. Nothing worthwhile. In all of these things that he did. The phrase under the sun, by the way, is the clue. Under the sun, on this earth, by the flesh, and only the flesh. We get back now with that in mind to Jesus and this woman in Samaria. Jesus knew that that this Samaritan woman was spiritually dehydrated. And hence, the detour that he took through a land strongly avoided by the Jews and the Jewish people. But he went there all for this one life. And I want you to remember that I say that I said, all for this one life. Keep that in mind, please. All for this one life. He offered her water from a fountain that would never run dry. In fact, it would be for her eternal life if she would just ask. And what we see here is is the love of God coming down like the Amazon River rushing down to water one flower. That's what God's love is like. That's what Jesus was offering this one woman in this critical state of her life. What a difference between the man-made cistern which Jacob's well was and the fountain that Jesus offers. Last week we, we ended with, with this particular verse, and it was, we're close to ending with it. It was Revelation 21 verse 6, where it says, And he said unto me, It is done, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And then he says, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And I, and I, and I mentioned this, that, that here in the book of Revelation, that points, that points us all to the very end of, of, of time to the, to the last days we're living in the last days but this would be the very end of all that is yet to come and yet in this particular statement he states it in the present for all who are present at every time that they read this to realize that there is still hope to come to the waters of the fountain of Jesus Christ it's still available it's still available now it's still available today I will give unto him that is thirsty, spiritually thirsty. And when you come to the realization that you are thirsting spiritually, the water 
will be available. I will give unto him. I will give, I will give, I will give unto him of the water, the fountain of the water of life freely. And folks, this woman in Samaria, she was thirsty. I mean, she was not only thirsty physically because she went there with a water pot to take water back to her place. (coughs) She was thirsty spiritually. And she came to that realization because of this encounter. She recognized her thirst and she wanted that living water. But now something needed to be dealt with. Before the cleansing water must come the confessing daughter. Before the cleansing water must come the confessing daughter. The lesson is that there is no conversion without conviction. There's no conversion of the heart without the conviction of sin. And notice what, what goes on. Let's look back here for just a moment at, at the new section that we began to read. In verse 15, the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And Jesus said unto her, Okay, well go call your husband and, and come here. Go call your husband and bring him here. Now she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast said, Well, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. Count them. He probably could even name them, but he doesn't do that. Thou hast hast had five husbands, and and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. And that says thou truly, you, you, you say truthfully. The request that that Jesus made of the woman in in, in verse 16, uh, go get your husband. It really wasn't an unusual request, by the way. Because the appearance of Jesus speaking to the woman alone there at that well seemed seemed to kind of strain the cultural decorum, you know. So it would have been appropriate for for the woman to, to bring her husband along, you know. So no one gets the wrong idea, go get your husband. But the statement and the question that was, you know, enveloped in all of that statement all it did was stir conviction. It stirred conviction and the confession of sin. She had to confess. And it was as if Jesus had pulled this full-length mirror out before her, practically forcing her to take a good, hard look at herself. And what did she see in that mirror? She saw that sobering reflection that greets you when you first wake up in the morning. And you're looking at me like, I don't look in the mirror in the morning. I know why. Because I look in the mirror and I scare myself. Now it's a very interesting thing. I mean, can you imagine that every morning you get up and there's this full-length mirror that you have to deal with? But it's a mirror that God puts there. 
You know, if it's only your regular mirror, you know, first of all, guys, you know, we don't do it. You know, we just like we're always the same. You know, we go in the morning where we look the same in the mirror. We scare ourselves and we do what we have to do. Then at night, you know, we don't look in the mirror at all. You know, ladies, you know, ladies, you, you, you have your makeup, which is fine. It's, it's wonderful. You know, you're all beautiful and all of that kind of good stuff. You know, but at night, you know, you go, go to sleep with your makeup. You take it off. You do all kinds of stuff. You know, whatever. You know, you do all this stuff. But then you wake up in the morning, and then your husband first sees, oh, yeah, yeah, and then, you know, and then you see, and then you go, ah, you know, to put the makeup right back on, you know. You go through this process every day. It's a sobering reflection. How much deeper to the heart when we see what's in the heart. Because that is exactly what Jesus revealed to this woman because he knew all about this woman and her marriages he knew about her guilt he knew about her ungodly and worldly choices he knew about her argumentative and defensive behavior if if that happened to have been the case in all of those relationships he knew if, uh, about her poor housekeeping because it might have been that one or, th- or all of those husbands that she had had before may have used that idea that, you know, listen, you know, you burn the, you, you, you burn supper, so, you know, I'm divorcing you. It could have been that easy to have done that, and he would have known all about that, all about the reasons for every, every split up there. He knew whether she was cold and withdrawn as being a part of the reason for the way that she lived her life or distant and indifferent in all of these relationships. And he knew her current situation. You say the truth. You're not married. What's interesting is that he says, because the person you're with, there's not a husband. Which, by the way, strengthens the need for marriage above just living together. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Oh, by the way, have you noticed that Jesus hasn't received his drink of water yet? Have you noticed that? Yeah. His, you know, he went there and he, he was thirsty. He was tired. And he was sad. And he asked the woman for a drink. And then they started talking about water. You know, you can talk about whatever, you're still thirsty if you just talk about it. But it went deeper. And it's important to understand this, that Jesus laid down his thirst. Jesus laid down his thirst so that this woman would recognize her thirst and need for God's living water. Aren't we so blessed to have Jesus in our life? This was in his humanity. How much more? Does he care about you in his glory? She confesses that Jesus' statement is technically true. She had no husband. But there was more to this story, you see. But her first real dealing with this brought out what she had mastery in. If she had any mastery whatsoever in anything, she had mastery in the art of changing the subject. Anybody here have a master's degree in changing the subject? Am I the only one? Oh, maybe not. Because notice in verse 19, it says, The woman saith unto him, after he said these things, and after they were talking about her, 
and she was in the mirror, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. So she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say, by the way, the mountain is Gerizim, we talked about it a little bit last week. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, or in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship, you know, at Mount Zion, on that mountain. So what has she done? She didn't want to focus on herself. She said, let's talk about worship. So there's no doubt that the Lord's sharp perception really pricked her conscience. I mean, it was like a, a just a knife that went right straight into her heart and, 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 and brought that, you know, that cutting conviction to her. And I mean to tell you, when they were talking, she was probably standing there squirming around. And because of that... She may have chosen to shift to what she believed to be a more comfortable conversation. Well, people around us here do that all the time, right? When we try to talk to them about Jesus, when we we try to let them know what their need is for Christ in their life. Oh, listen, people change the subject all the time. Sometimes they say, well, well, okay, well, what what about the heathen in Africa? What about the pygmies in pygmy land? Now they find all kinds of things to take the attention off of themselves. What does a, uh, why, why does a good God allow suffering and evil? See, uh, that way the attention is not on me, it's on somebody else. Or we can go to, you know, just change complete subjects. I mean, hey, let's talk about creation versus evolution. Or maybe we should we, we should talk about we should talk about baptism. You know what is it uh, anyway? Is it is it uh, uh, sprinkling or immersion? You know, let's talk about that. Or what about communion? All right, is it grape juice or is it wine? Let's talk about that, but not don't talk about me. You see how we can change the subject? People often do. I bet you some of us who came, have come to know Christ already, we can look back before we came to Jesus, and we probably said the same things. When people first brought the gospel to us, hey, I don't want to talk about this. I mean, you're, you know, don't. I worship God my own way. Oh, by the way, that's coming up. The problem is for people... is that it's, it's really difficult to evade the Lord. It is really difficult to evade the Lord. May I say that it is impossible? I mean, when the Lord's after you, it's just impossible to evade Him. You can't do it. Because remember that the Lord is also the master surgeon. He's the master surgeon and He uses His scalpel you know, those of you who are in the medical profession, you know, if, you, if you're ever around scalpels, you know, man, those things are, are really sharp. I mean, they, they are extremely sharp. You know, they're not like that little knife you buy at, at, at Walgreens for a dollar and a half, you know. As you think, you, you know, you, well, you can cut yourself with it, but it's not a real good cut. Sometimes it's, a, it's an awful cut because it's so, you know, ragged edged. But a, but a surgeon's scalpel, man, is precision stuff. I mean, it just cuts clean we have a master surgeon who actually has done his work on us if we're believers in Jesus Christ 
He's done his work in us, hasn't he? Because he always gets to the heart of the matter. You read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. You might want to keep your finger here. We'll come back to Hebrews. But here in Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, For the word of God is quick, which means it's living and alive. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. But notice this, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That is why he could see into the very heart of this woman and be able to explain to her, listen, you've had five husbands. And the person you're with now is not your husband. So you were truthful by saying you don't have a husband. But he knew. He knew. We can't hide anything from him. And the fact is, we must never, we today in this room, we must never live behind the masks of pretense because the Lord is certainly able to see through them as He did with this woman. Now His Word brought conviction of sin to the surface of her heart. Much like the preaching of Peter in the temple after Pentecost. After the Holy Spirit came upon the church there, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, and the 120 received those, you know, the, you know those, those uh, uh, blazes of fire upon their heads, you know, I mean, it was significant of the Holy Spirit and, 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 and moved upon them in a mighty way. And the church, in essence, was, was born at this time. Peter and, and the, the apostles went to the temple and given the opportunity by the Holy Spirit, he began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He began to preach about all the activities that have been taking place in, 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 in just uh, recent days there before this happened with what had happened to Jesus of Nazareth and how he went to the cross, how he died on the cross. as the pure Lamb of God, as, as the Messiah of Israel. And under that great anointing of, of, of the Holy Spirit on his heart, in conclusion to all of that, we're told in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, that when they heard this, when these men, and there were thousands of them that heard this, but when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. That means they were cut. With that scalpel, they were cut to reveal the depth of their sin. And they said unto Peter to the rest, and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were convicted of their sin. And this is what was happening in this heart of this woman. But now in trying to avoid the issue, because this one, you know, I mean, that's what we try to do as well. Aren't you glad that the Lord pursues us like he does? I'm so glad that he loves us so much that he pursues us that way. Until we finally have to surrender and say, you're right, Lord. 
I'm just a mess. And I need you. But we try to avoid it. And she tried to avoid this one issue. So she changes the subject and, and, and brings up the issue of worship. But that's, you know, that's like going from the fire, uh, from the fire to the, you know, fry, or from the frying pan into the fire, you know. She didn't realize it, but uh, that's what's going to happen. One thing to notice though, the progression, the progression of this woman in regards to Jesus. Notice this for just a moment. Because if you look at this whole thing from the, the beginning of this chapter to where we are, she first saw Jesus as a Jew. I mean, as a matter of fact, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, speak to me, a woman of Samaria here? So she recognizes him first as a Jew, but then in the conversation, she begins to call him, call him sir. And she does that a couple of times. That's a, that's a term of respect. So now, in this particular place, she calls him a prophet. And I believe that she was actually saying that he was a prophet. Although, you know, anytime people would see prophets come along, they didn't really want to stick around with a prophet because usually prophets had the word of the Lord that was usually kind of uh, convicting as it were. And you get the idea now why she probably wanted to change the, the subject. But, but some people have believed that her faith was really growing here as her sin is exposed. That, that in, it, in itself is something that went to, on with our hearts. That when, when we, the more we began to learn about Jesus and what He did for us, the more we began to respect what He did for us. And our hearts were changing as our sin was exposed. And when our sin was exposed, what could we do but plead for mercy? Plead for God's mercy. But let me just say this, that, that just recognizing that Jesus is a prophet, that won't save you. Just recognizing that he's a prophet is not going to save you. It, it wasn't going to save her. She needed to see him as Messiah. She needed to see him as Savior. And soon she would. But before she gets to that point, she takes that side road to get him off the other trail. So, so where do we worship? Where do we worship? My mountain or yours? Do we worship at Gerizim or do we worship at Zion? Where do we worship? So Jesus in verse 21 says unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh. Now please keep that little phrase in mind. The hour cometh. I'm going to give something away. Because he'll say a little later, The hour cometh and now is. But the hour is coming. The hour is coming when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. And then he says, you worship, you know not what. <laughs> Let's put that in more modern terms. You don't even know what you worship. You don't even know what you worship. Now remember that we talked about the Samaritans last week. We talked about the fact that they were considered a half-breed. And they were, you know, uh, in, uh, they're under the Assyrian captivity. And, uh, the, and then they began to intermarry with other, other heathen uh, uh, groups. And so that became the Samaritans. And, and, and so they began to adopt a lot of religious practices from a lot of different places. One, of, of course, we mentioned the fact that they believed in the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses. 
But remember again that they changed everything in the, in the Torah to, to reflect upon their worship at Gerizim. You know, everything happened at Gerizim. Noah's Ark landed on Gerizim, not at Ararat. You know, uh, uh, Moses received the tablets in Gerizim. You know, a lot of things happened there in Gerizim because they changed it all. So with that kind of mixture, Jesus was certainly correct when he says, you don't know what you worship. But then he inserts this, and he says, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now when you look very carefully at this in the, in the Greek, there is this little article that says, for the salvation, the salvation is of the Jews. The salvation. In other words, there's no other salvation. There's no other way. So who was he speaking of? Of himself. Salvation is of the Jews because the Messiah would come through the line of Judah. But I must say this. Jesus is not out to win an argument. He's out to win a soul. Simply, Jesus was saying, it's not the location of worship that's important, but it's the object of worship. And it's not where you worship, but how you worship. And it's not just how you worship, but ultimately, who you worship. Or is it whom? Who you worship. That's what it's about. Who you worship. To whom you worship. And give all honor and glory. Notice again the phrase, the hour cometh. Because Jesus said that an hour was coming. An hour was coming that would change the whole nature of worship. The way men approached God was going to experience a volcanic eruption of sorts. Worship of God was, was going to be radically and completely changed. There was an hour, an historical event coming that would change it. He, he was referring, of course, to his death. And to the coming of the Holy Spirit. The place of worship was no longer the temple or any other particular location on earth. God's presence would now dwell in the hearts and the lives of His people. And this was something that the Jewish people should have known because it was in the Word of God. You could see it in the book of Isaiah. You could see it in the book of Jeremiah. You can see it in the prophecies of Ezekiel especially about everything changing in the heart, about worship being in the heart, about the Lord dwelling in the hearts of men. So His people worship Him, His people, that would include us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, His people worship Him wherever they are. Why? Because God's presence would now dwell in the hearts and the lives of His people. And His people worship Him wherever they are, and they can worship Him every day, and they can worship Him all day long. I am so sure that most of you today, during the, most of you during the week, you know, when you're at work and you're, you know, you're doing all kinds of stuff, you're not saying there, oh, I can't wait to go to that place on Zaragoza Road, you know, we can go over there because I just want to worship God. I, I can't, you know, I just can't wait to get there. No, you don't come here to worship. I mean, you do come here to worship, but you don't just come here to worship. You worship when you get out of here. You worship at home. You can worship at work. You can worship at school. Why? Because He goes with you. 
You have His Spirit in you. We're going to talk a little bit about this in just a moment. Now, we know that God did instruct the Jewish people to build the temple in Jerusalem as a place of worship unto Him, but that truly is not the issue. Worship is a matter of the heart, and it, it has always been a matter of the heart. Worship has always been a matter of the heart. And yes, the Jews had the oracles of God, they had the Word of God, and therefore salvation is of the Jews. And because Messiah would come through them. And this light of God in the words and the oracles of God, they were to share with others, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9. There in Romans chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 5, Paul says, and by the way, chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans is really all about Israel. But here in verse 1 it says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, speaking of the Jewish people, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth, notice, to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. All of that was given to the Jewish people, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. He came through the Jewish people, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. And we know from the Word of God, that God had called them specifically to be the people of the Word of God. To be the people to preach the Word, to take the Word to all the Gentile nations. And proclaim the God who created the heavens and the earth was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Paul grieved over the fact that the Jews who had the words of God had now rejected him. Because you see, they made this relationship with God into rituals to be kept instead of a love relationship to be kindled in their hearts. It's, it's, it's also good to note that Jesus was not afraid to tell the women that she was on the wrong spiritual path. And neither should we be afraid of someone if someone is not on the path of Jesus to tell them about the Lord. Because too often people tell us that we're not tolerant of other religions. Well, that's just not true. We just don't agree with them because they don't lead people to God. And they don't lead people to the true God. You see, it isn't that all roads lead to God. There's only one road. There really is only one way to God, the true God. And Jesus is the one who told us what it is. It's himself. Right? John 14, verse 6. Jesus speaking to Thomas directly, but he says, I am the way. By the way, stop there and just think. The way, that is the way, that is the path. That's the road. Jesus says, I'm the road. I'm the way, I'm the path. He could have even said, I'm the freeway. Because it's free. But he's the way. The truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. 
That is one of the strongest, if I can use the word, this is one of the strongest negatives that you'll find in the scripture. No man, not one man, can come to the Father except through Jesus. No one. Not one. But here's the thing. Either we believe that or we don't. Think about that. Either we believe that or we don't. And what we believe will be manifested in our lives. Both what we do and what we say. So now Jesus says in verse 23 of our text, But the hour cometh and now is. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. And then He says this, God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must. Remember we talked about the word must last week? I mean, we, when Jesus said, I must needs go to Samaria, and the strength of that word must was of the greatest necessity. He says that here as well. He says, God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Some people believe it doesn't matter how you worship God as long as you worship Him. As I said before, the people that really want to avoid any personal issues in their own lives, you know, they say, look, you know, don't bother me because I, I worship God my own way. Does that make him right? Of course not. Because Jesus is saying that that is totally wrong. It does matter. It matters how you worship. The Word of God is very clear about that. It matters how we worship. First of all, you must worship Him in spirit. You must worship Him in spirit. That is, you must, must, must be saved. You must be saved. You must be born again. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Unless a man is born again, he cannot see, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's a strong statement, isn't it? But Jesus tells Nicodemus that. Unless a man is born again, spiritually, he cannot see or enter into the kingdom of God. You must be saved and born again before God will accept any part of your worship. And again, Paul put it this way. If you look at Romans 8, verses 6 through 9, Paul said, For to be carnally minded is death. What is carnally minded? That's fleshly minded. Worldly minded. For to be carnally minded is death. Well, what's good in death? What can you do in death? Nothing. Therefore, if you try to worship in death, you are worshiping with a dead worship. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What is it that we received when we die to ourselves and we said yes to the Lord and said, Lord, come into my life, cleanse me, purify me, change me, give me a new heart, give me a new life. What did we receive? Eternal life, but we also received peace. Why? What happens after a war and somebody wins? Then they have to negotiate peace. Well, we've been at war. How do we know that? The next verse. 
Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. The carnal mind, the fleshly mind, the worldly mind is, is enmity. The word enmity means hostility. The carnal mind is hostile before God and against God. Hostile. We didn't know it in those terms. Some of us used to go to church every Sunday, but we lived really bad the rest of the week. Right? I'm not, I'm not giving my own testimony here, am I? I mean, isn't that the way it was? Don't raise your hands if you don't want to. But hey, listen. You know what I'm saying? You went to church. You know, you did the whole thing. On a Sunday. But from Monday to Saturday. Ooh, man, get out of my way. It's my life. It's my week. It's my way of doing things. But I'll go to Sunday. You understand what I'm saying? Am I alone here? We were at war against God because we were not wanting to do what God had called us to do in bringing pure worship to Him, which is what we're called to do. For it is not subject to the law. The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's why we could go to church and didn't understand a word anybody said. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, speaking to the church, speaking directly to the church. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell where? In you. In you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So how can you say, I can worship God my own way, So don't tell me that it matters. It matters to God. It matters to the Lord. So if you are saved, then the Spirit of God indwells you. In fact, the Scriptures tell us we can't even say that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit indwells you. So we worship Him in spirit. But secondly, we must worship Him in truth as well. That is, we must worship Him according to His Word. We cannot just approach God any way we want. Remember that He is holy and righteous all the time. In fact, when you read Isaiah chapter 6, we're told that God is holy, holy, holy. Three times a word is used. We see in other places in the scriptures that that God is is love, but He never says love, love, love. The Beatles sang that, but you know, who are the Beatles to tell us about God? The Bible tells us God is love, that He's merciful, that He's gracious, and all of these things, but it never says that like it says that He's holy, holy. Holy. Why do why do we approach God sometimes as if, you know, He's the person next door, you know? We call him the man upstairs. Don't call him the man upstairs. He's God. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our bowing before him. Our hearts bowed before God. We are to approach him humbly yet boldly, which means that we are to approach him with confidence. 
You know, I've heard preachers talk about being bold, you know, be bold about this. And it's a great word to use in preaching, you know. But, you know, you have to understand something. We come humbly, but we come with confidence. We can come with confidence because of what Christ has already done for us. We can come there because He has torn the veil for us to approach Him. And to come to His throne of grace. That's why in, in, in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 it says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And boy does the Lord give us what we need when we need it. And when we come to Him and, 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 and receive it from Him. That's why we're here today as well. To lay down our burdens to Him and say, Lord, this is my need for this week, my need for this day. But God meets it every time because He knows what He needs and that's what He cares about. Sometimes He gives us what we want. Sometimes I worry about that. You get what, you know, sometimes you get what you want and you say, okay, how do I handle that? But it's most important to remember that He gives us what we need. That's what matters the most. Well, let's close up here. Jesus brings this whole discussion now to a burning focal point. Why do I say a burning focal point because in verses 25 and 26 it says the woman saith unto him I know I know that Messiah comes which is called Christ and when he has come he will tell us all things so the Samaritans were aware that there was a Messiah that was going to come but notice what Jesus said in verse 26 Jesus said unto her I speak I that speak unto thee am he I that speak unto thee am he now the woman recognizes that the Messiah is coming and Jesus tells her it is he but the English doesn't do the phrase justice as it does in the Greek because the original language has Jesus stating this and I quote I am that speaks to you I am that speaks to you in other words Jesus is claiming to be the voice from the burning bush you remember what Moses Discovered when he was out there tending sheep out in the desert, the wilderness of Sinai. And he saw a burning bush, but he noticed that the bush was not being consumed. And so he went to investigate, and a voice speaks out of that bush and says, Take your shoes off your feet, because the ground on which you stand is holy ground. And God begins to speak from this bush to Moses. And he enlists Moses to be the one to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And in that time with God, Moses said, well, what's your name? What's the name that I can tell him that's sending me? And you know what, what the answer was? I am that I am. I am. That's the name of God in Hebrew. The, and, and the Jewish people consider it so holy, they, they won't pronounce it. They will call him Adonai, Lord. Hashem, the name. But they don't speak that name. It's that holy to them. I am that I am. And when they translated the, the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, what is called the Septuagint in Exodus it says in Greek ego 
Amy, I am. The very same words that Jesus said to this woman. The words he said many times in the scriptures. He said it before his crucifixion. When they came to arrest him. And just for the sake of identification. They said, are you Jesus? He said, I am. And those soldiers that came to get him, and there was a lot of soldiers, by the way, they all fell back as if dead at the name spoken by Jesus. I am. That's the name he gave to this woman. I know Messiah's coming, she says. He's here. I am. <laughs> Amen. The great I am. The great I am. The one who is, the one who was, the one who will always be. By the way, sorry to disappoint those of you who say that Jesus never claimed to be God, because he does here and he does so in many other verses. But let's close here with four more verses. And upon this came his disciples. So now with that statement that he makes to this woman, here comes the disciples with the food. You know, the pizza from someplace. And they marveled though. They marveled that, that he had talked with this woman. I mean, this, the, the very fact that he was in Samaria, now he, he probably wouldn't have talked to any Samaritans. I mean, they had to go to Samaria and talk to them, but to a woman? So it says that, yet no man said, what, what, what seekest thou? Like if asking her or even asking him, why talkest thou with her? They, did, they just kept silent. The woman then left her water pot. What'd she go there for? She went for water. What did she do? She left her water pot. And she went into the way of went her way into the city and she said to the men, the men of the city, more than likely the leaders of the city, but she goes to them and says, Come, see a man which told me all things that I ever did. In other words, he just revealed my life. I don't even know this person. I didn't know him. I know him now. But he revealed everything about me. Is not this the Messiah? Is not this the Christ? And then they went out of the city, the men, and they came to Jesus. They came to Him. Folks, why did she leave her water pot behind, first of all? Why did she leave her water pot? Didn't she come to the well in the first place to get water? Well, yeah, she did come to the well for physical water, but they, she left with spiritual water that was refreshing and everlasting to her life. And thus she leaves the old life behind. That water pot was her old life. She left it behind. This is a new life. The old wineskin, as you can also say, and has come out of that way of life into a new life with Jesus. Folks, that's us if we've come to know Him. Paul said it this way, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things, all things have become new. 
She had a new water pot. It was right here. I was getting filled every day. Jesus freed a woman from habitual immorality. He freed worship from the limitation of space and place. And he desires to free you today from a dehydrated, parched, barren, and sin-filled life. If that's you, he wants to give you that water today. By the way, I asked you to remember that Jesus went for one solitary life in Samaria. Can I leave you with a question? Does seeking out one soul matter? Does it, the seeking out one soul matter? It sure does. What did she go do? She went to witness right away. She went to witness Jesus. And the men came. Don't ever think that just because you might have only told one person about Jesus, that that doesn't matter. I know that there are people, you know, we, we, we know in the ministry, there, there are always people that are always looking to have the spotlight. They just want to see as many people, you know, come to see them, you know. But it's about that one solitary life. That if we can tell them about Jesus and they turn their lives over to Christ and their lives become new and then they go, what do they do? They go tell others. Who tell others? Who tell others? One day we will enter into the kingdom and there will be many who will come and say, hey, I want to thank you. I don't even know you. Who are you? Well, you shared the word of God with this person who shared it with a bunch of other people who shared it to, and it just came down and I got saved too. You see the importance of one life? So, don't give up. Just because we see the day of Christ approaching could come at any moment, praise the Lord for that, don't give up. Keep living with the light of the glory of Christ in your life. Keep living by telling others about Jesus. Don't stop. Affect someone's life. Be an influence. Be the light to the world that Christ said you are and be the salt of the earth. Be a saving influence in people's lives. Tell them about the love of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Time to get going. I tell you, the Lord allowed me to bless you guys a little longer than everybody else. Always happens. Second service. I keep thinking, I keep saying that they'll come to first service. But you keep coming here, and that's fine. I'm glad. Because it's not about time. It's about eternity. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you shalom, give you peace and wholeness and completeness, everything held together, nothing missing, nothing broken, His love and His mercy and His grace, keeping you together in His love. Have a wonderful week. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. And, um, you know, we'll see you here, there, or in the air.